1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 21. We read to the end of the chapter at the first verse of chapter 17. Let's hear the word of God. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginath. So Tibni died, and Omri reigned. In the thirty-first year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel and reigned twelve years. Six years he reigned in Terza, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, owner of the hill. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri, which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the thirty-eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty-two years. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Debat, that he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days... Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite, of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Let's pray. Lord, again we beseech you to open up the word of God to us. We thank you for the things that we have learned as we have worked our way through the history of the nation of Israel, and as we consider the lives of Omri and Ahab, and as we consider the arrival of Elijah on the scene, we ask our God that you would speak to us plainly and clearly, and establish us in the truth, that we may not turn away from it, 
but we may be true and faithful worshippers of the one true and living God. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. The nation of Israel, the ten tribes, their life is disintegrating rapidly. All the time there is only one king in the southern kingdom, Asa, who is of the Davidic line. He reigned for forty odd years. Israel has already had four kings, and now there are another two, Omri and his son Ahab. Idolatry is established. When Jeroboam built the golden bulls in Dan and Bethel, violence and bloodshed is now characteristic. There is a civil war going on in verse 21. There is division. Half follow one man, Tibni, and half follow Omri. Omri eventually triumphs when Tibni dies. Intrigue and conspiracy have become commonplace in the royal palace in Terzah. And with the death of Zimri, who only reigned for seven years, you remember how the palace went up in flames because Zimri committed suicide and set fire to the royal house there in Terzah. We begin to ask ourselves, can the situation get any worse? And the answer to that is, yes it can, and it does. And then we ask another question, well why doesn't God intervene? Has he finished with this people? Has he had enough of this people? They provoked him enough and long enough with their idolatry. But it does get worse. Sin reaches new depths. Apostasy and false religion take on new dimensions. Content and disregard for the word of God is openly expressed. One commentator says that it looks with the arrival of Ahab as if Antichrist has arrived ahead of time. So desperate is the situation. And where is God? Is he involved? Oh yes. The sudden arrival of Elijah and the startling message that he brings at the recorded at the beginning of chapter 17, which I am persuaded is a false chapter division. It belongs to what has gone before. God is involved. And although there are new depths to sin, God is involved more than ever because we now begin the ministries of two men, two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And it is interesting because the remaining chapters of 1 Kings and the first 12 chapters of 2 Kings are taken up with Elijah and Elisha. And that is a span of about 80 years out of the total of 450 years that cover the period that we are looking at in 1 and 2 Kings. So a third, roughly, and these are only rough figures, but a third of the history of the people of Israel and Judah is found here in these chapters. And as if God by his spirit parts here and focuses our attention upon Elijah and Elisha. 
I want to look with you at Omri, at Ahab, and Elijah. I want to look at Omri as he promotes bull worship. I want to look at Ahab as he sponsors Baal worship. And then we want to look at Elijah, who champions the God of Israel, standing for true worship. So let us first of all look at Omri as he promotes bull worship. The narrator tells us but two things about Omri once he became king. For the rest, he says, you'll have to turn to the royal website www.chronicles of the kings of Israel if you want to know more about him. But he says, as far as I am concerned, I'll tell you one thing about him about Samaria, how he established Samaria as the capital of the northern kingdom. That is important because Samaria becomes central then in the northern kingdom. And what happened in Samaria? So how did Samaria become the capital city? Well, here is the answer. But the other thing we are told is recorded for us there in verse 25. Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now we're not told the substantial details by which Omri did worse than all who were before him. But what he did was to actively promote the Jeroboam bull worship. Remember how he set up those golden calves, those golden bulls at Dan and at Bethel. He may have been here strengthening his power in Samaria and he may have been strengthening this false worship there in Bethel and Dan and perhaps in other places. We are not told the details of in what ways he made things worse. We are simply told he did worse than all who were before him. But again we have, and we've seen it before, God's assessment of Omri. What is it that matters? What is it that matters about you? What is it that matters about me? What is it that matters about these men whose lives who are being described here? The most important thing about you is whether you fear God in your heart. Whether you are like the merchant described in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 45, by our Lord Jesus Christ. When he's talking there about the kingdom of heaven, and he says, it's like the merchant that seeks beautiful pearls. And then he finds the pearl of great price. And he sells everything else in order to possess this pearl of great price. Omni's not interested in that pearl. Omri's trading in illegal goods. He's trading in idolatry. He has apostatized with the rest of the kings of the nation of Israel. That pearl is all important. That pearl is none other than Jesus Christ. Omri had no time for Christ. Omri had no time for the kingdom of God. Omri had no time for the worship of the one true 
living God. He had no time for the truth of the word of God, the Bible. He was content to let things go on and even to make them worse and to advance falsehood and false religion. But God assesses. God weighs. And these men are found wanting. It takes conviction and it takes courage to stand against false religion and false practice. And Omri does not have that conviction, neither does he have that courage. And he goes on and promotes false worship. But if Omri did worse than all those who were before him, we read in chapter 16 and verse 30, about his son Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He not only did evil, but he outsinned his son, his father Omri, and he outsinned Jeroboam. And you say, well, Jeroboam was bad enough. How much worse can it get? Remember how Jeroboam progressively and deliberately put the word of God behind his back. And yet, Omri was worse than him, and now Ahab is worse than Jeroboam and Omri. Secondly then, we come to Ahab, who sponsors Baal worship. Ahab's reign is 22 years long. And Ahab introduced a new age. There is a new road. There is a new direction. This is the brief age of Baal. Jeroboam introduced a longer age, which we can call the age of bull, if you like. The age of bull worship. Now, this man, Ahab, goes one step further and introduces a brief age of Baal. And the Spirit of God tells us four things that happened during the reign of Ahab. These again are the things that are important as Ahab's life is introduced to us. And the whole spirit of this man is dominated by Baal and by Baal worship. Firstly we are told in verse 31 that he, in introducing Baal he trivialized the sin of Jeroboam. Oh, it's nothing. He poo-pooed it. It's nothing of any consequence. And that is a clear indication of Ahab's spiritual deadness, his blindness, his ignorance and his apathy. There is no fear of God in this man's heart. He doesn't take into account the previous judgments of God he doesn't take into account the words of the prophets. The last 50 or 60 years seemingly count for nothing. Maybe Ahab checked the royal websites of his predecessors. But he was not listening to the prophets. He was not listening to God in any way, shape or form. And that's a terrible state to be in. And it's the state our nation is in, by and large. Not listening to God. Not aware of sin. And regarding sin as 
nothing. Someone just shrugs your shoulders and says, well, that's the way it is. That's what Ahab did. When he looked at what Jeroboam introduced, he just shrugged his shoulders. It's okay. Not a problem. He trivialized it. Is it any wonder then that he went a step further and sponsored and stirred up Baal and introduced Baal worship? First of all, we find that he married a foreign wife, Jezebel, the daughter of Eth Baal. Baal is the god of the Sidonians. Eth Baal means Baal is alive. And Ahab made sure that Baal was alive, as it were, in the nation of the people of God, Israel. And we know what Jezebel was like. She was not just a casual worshipper of Baal. She was a fanatic. She was a zealot. She was a devotee of evil and idolatry. A passionate evangelist for Baal. And Ahab marries her. And subsequent accounts tell us that she had a very strong influence over her husband. And then thirdly we are told that spurred on by his wife but it was his responsibility. Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. The end of verse 31. And he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal which he built in Samaria. Samaria became a Baal worshipping place. And then we're told in verse 33 he set up an Asherah pole. That is a wooden image. That is a female Canaanite goddess. Baal is enthroned then in Samaria. Here is a bastard religion devoted to it. If the age of bulls, says some, one of the commentators, was like drinking polluted water, then the age of Baal was like drinking raw sewage. That's the violence that has been introduced into Samaria by Ahab. Is it any wonder then that we read of God's assessment in verse 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab takes idolatry and sin to a new level. A new low level of de degradation. And to show how that affected the life of the nation, there is one more event that typified the age of Baal. It is spread out over a few years, but it is only summarized in one verse, in verse 34. Here is an open defiance and contempt for God's word. Heel of Bethel. Bethel. That was where Jeroboam introduced his golden calves. And this man, this man comes under the curse pronounced by Joshua many years before. Most commentators say that when it says in his days, that it is in Ahab's days, he El of Bethel beat, built Jericho and laid its foundations and then completed its gates that he would have done that only with Ahab's permission and full approval. What had happened was this, that many years before all this happened, Joshua had pronounced a curse 
with regard to Jericho. Jericho, remember, was the first Canaanite city that was conquered by Israel when they came out of Egypt through the wilderness and came into the promised land. Jericho was the first city to be destroyed with all its abominable practices. Remember how they marched around the city and the walls fell down on the seventh day. But with the resurrection of Baal worship, there is the resurrection of Jericho. But in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26, Joshua had said, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. And the narrator simply says, He laid its foundation with Abiram his firstborn and with his youngest son Segub he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken through Joshua the son of Nun. The graves of Abiram and Segub are testimony to the truth of God's word. You may say, well, didn't someone get the message when the firstborn son died? No. Did they get the message when the second son died? No. This is the state of the nation. This is the consequence of of false worship introduced by Jeroboam, the bull worship. This is the consequence of the worship now introduced by Ahab, Baal worship. And the narrator tells us and indicates for us the contempt that God's word was held in. But it happened to Hiel just as God said. The total disregard for God and for his word But let us remind ourselves in the light of what we see here that no one can rewrite God's word. Heel of Bethel, the curse falls upon him and upon his family. And yet people today think nothing of flying in the face of God's word. God's word says, you shall not commit adultery. And what do people do? They shrug their shoulders and say, well, everybody does it. So it can't be wrong, can it? But can you rewrite the commandments of God? A few years ago, there was an actor, I do not know if he still does this, but he made it known that whenever he goes and stays in a hotel and he finds a Bible, a Gideon's Bible, there, he turns immediately to the pages that condemn homosexuality and rips out the pages. What difference does that make? Is he rewriting the word of God? Is he cancelling the word of God? Not for one moment. We've seen that before, haven't we? You know your Bible? The days of Jeremiah, there was a king, Jehoiakim. And when the word of the Lord was given to him on a, on a scroll, was written, it was written by, uh, by Jeremiah's uh, man, Baruch, came into the presence of the king, it was read out, every three or four columns and he was ready to a penknife, threw it into the fire. Did he change 
the word of God? Did he change the course of history by trying to cancel out the word of God? What folly. What folly. We've already mentioned the situation in our own nation. You may think, well it can't get much worse in the United Kingdom than things really are. The cultural decadence, the declining standards, even affecting children. There was a report this week saying the primary school children and their parents are suffering from deep anxiety about modern life. They don't feel safe, they don't feel settled. And consumerism and individualism and materialism were blamed for the unsettled nature, the suffering, the deep anxiety that is affecting even young children in primary schools. We look around and we see that successive governments and prime ministers are powerless to actually stop crime, pornography, murder, violence and the general godlessness that permeates our society. Can it get worse? Yes it can. And it may yet do. It did in Omri's day and it did certainly in Ahab's day. Perhaps you can recall the words of Christ to the church in Pergamos in Revelation 2 and verse 13. I know your works and I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And Satan's throne had been established in Samaria. But it did not alter the truth of God or the truth of his word. In Pergamos, Antipas was martyred. Some of the prophets of the Lord were endangered and were slaughtered by Jezebel. You remember how Elijah later on said, Lord, I'm the only one left. But you see, God says to us, I know where you dwell. I know that Satan's throne is being enthroned where you are. Just as it was in the days of Ahab when he set up a synagogue of Satan in Samaria. We turn back to the word of God. And we turn there and we are not in despair. Because God, though he has not been seemingly active up to this point in the reign of Omri or in the reign, the beginning of Ahab, he is not standing there as it were idle. He is observing what is going on and he is preparing his plans to bring them into effect. And now suddenly there is the dramatic entrance onto the stage of a man whose name means my God is the Lord Elijah you may think well has God left it too late why has he taken so long Omri and Ahab have lived longer and been kings on their thrones for longer than some of their predecessors and there's a reason for that sin sometimes must be seen in its full colours before God acts. It was so in the days of Noah. It was certainly true in the days of Abraham 
when God said to Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, Genesis 15, 16. And therefore, you will not go into the land to possess the land and dispossess the nations until the iniquity of the Amorites is fulfilled, is complete. You can see it for what it is. And then you see God's justice and God's power is vindicated. And there is every reason then for us to draw encouragement. As thirdly, we look at Elijah as he champions the God of Israel and stands for true worship over against bull worship and Baal worship. Here in chapter 17 and verse 1. As Israel goes on in the sin of Jeroboam, now the sin of Ahab and the worship of Baal, here is the southern unexpected, dramatic appearance of a prophet of the one true and living God. He does not have much to say but what he says is plain and pointed. You remember a few rains ago how Jeroboam's wife had the shock of her life. She went in disguise to Ahijah the prophet. And Ahijah was getting old and he was blind. And in she walks thinking she's fooled him. Come in, wife of Jeroboam. I wouldn't want to have been in Ahab's shoes the days Elijah walked into Samaria and said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. You, Ahab, you have, have introduced this Baal worship. You have spurned the living God. You've shown contempt. You've shown ignorance of God. And here this man appears, Elijah the Tishbite. No court dress, no polished words. And he begins with a sworn oath. As the Lord God of Israel lives. You're devoted to bull worship, to Baal worship. I come to you in the name of the living God. Did Ahab begin to tremble at his knees? One of the commentators on the life of Elijah says that when he appeared on the scene here, he combined the courage of Martin Luther the plainness of speech of Hugh Latimer, the devotion of Calvin, and the impetuosity of John Knox, all wrapped up in one character as he stood before this wicked king. Now when he said, as the Lord God of Israel lives, he was speaking as a servant of the living God. To many in Elijah's day, these would have been vain words, taking the name of God in vain. But not to Elijah. He confronts this false Baal worshipper with the living God. You who repudiate the living God, you who hold him in contempt, as the Lord God of Israel lives. And I would suggest he strikes terror into the heart of Ahab. He says, I stand before this God 
And I am telling you, Ahab, there will be neither dew nor rain these years, except at my word. This God is not far removed. He's not forgotten Israel, Ahab. He's not far away. He's not taking no interest as you think. And you go on in your false worship. I am in his, I am in your presence. But I stand before you, Ahab, as a spokesman of the living God. I am here by his command. I am protected by him. You cannot stand against him, Ahab. No dew will reign in these years, according to my word. Ahab will feel the full force of divine judgment. And so will everyone in the nation of Israel. Because the land depends upon the rain and the dew for their food, for the growing of their crops. God will withhold the rain. God will withhold the dew. Drought and famine will certainly follow. And all of that, although it is not recorded here, but if we are expected to know our Bibles well enough to say, wait a moment, that is precisely what God said would happen in the days of Moses. When Moses gave the word of the Lord to the people of God, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus we read on a number of occasions that drought will be the result of disobedience and idolatry. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. Or Deuteronomy 28, 23. God said, you go this way of idolatry, then the heavens over your head will be as bronze and the earth under your feet as iron. This is divine intervention. This is divine judgment. Now you must face God in judgment, Ahab, because you have provoked him to anger. The time for accounting has come. The curses of the covenant are going to come upon you and upon this nation. But in these words of Ahab, in these words of Elijah to Ahab, there is something more than meets the eye. Palestine is a land that experiences what is called the Mediterranean kind of climate where you get warm, wet winters and the rains are beginning and the end of the winter and then hot, dry summers. Baal is the Canaanite storm god, the god of the rains, the god responsible in the eyes of those who worship him for the fertility of the land. This is more than just a curse upon the nation. This is a judgment upon the gods whom they have introduced into the nation and saying, these are your gods. In the same way that God judged the gods of Egypt. Now he is in judgment, not only upon Ahab and the nation, but upon the gods they have introduced, upon the veils. Life and death were seen to be in the hands of Baal. The seasons of rain were supposedly controlled by Baal. There's an ancient text. It's a poem, but it doesn't rhyme like some poetry does. Where Baal's power over the rain and the waters is described. Seven years shall Baal fail, eight the rider of the clouds, there shall be no dew, no rain, no surging of the two depths, 
nor the goodness of Baal's voice. These were the kinds of things that people believed. And this is what Ahab had introduced into Israel. And in the annual crop cycle, when they would grow their crops during the wet season, and then harvest them at the beginning of the summer, the hot summer, the notion was, the idea was, that when the vegetation then ceased to grow, Baal died. And then he had to go and appear to another god, Moat, Death, who told Baal, descend into the netherworld and then take your clouds and storm rains again and come. And here is God's servant, Elijah. My God is the Lord, championing the cause of God, the living God, throwing down the gauntlet, throwing down a challenge, confronting Ahab and Baal. There is a great contest that is about to begin between God and Baal. And we will soon discover who is the true God and who is to be worshipped. God is mocking Baal. And soon we will find Elijah mocking Baal and the prophets of Baal. Ahab, Jezebel, the priests and their minions who served Baal, seeking to ensure the fertility of the land, versus Elijah who champions the Lord, the God of Israel, and announces it is God, the living God, who is in control of the rain and the dew. And there will be no rain, and there will be no dew, unless I say so. One man, sent by God, is all it takes to topple Baal. How bad can it get? Pretty bad. Very bad. One God, one man sent by God is God's answer. What is the principal lesson then that we learn? I believe there is a word of instruction and a word of comfort here. Because when we look at the world around us, when we look at Western Europe, when we look at our own nation, and we see that disintegration, we have our fears, we have our concerns for God's cause, we have our concerns for the Church of Christ. When we hear of those who have been murdered and cut down for serving Christ, we have our cares and we have our concerns. This passage of Scripture gives us courage. It gives us convictions that are the root of that courage. For we should, first of all, never ever doubt God's word and God's activity. Even when sin and ungodliness seemingly gains the upper hand. Even when Satan's throne seems to be there in full power. The power of God's word does not change, even though God may appear not 
to be acting. We read earlier on in the service Psalm 115 and the folly of idolatry. And what does the psalmist do there? He urges us, trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. He will bless us. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. It is never in vain to lay hold of and to continue to trust in God. Remind yourself, Ahijah, he speaks and Jeroboam's house falls to the ground and Basha becomes king. Jehu speaks. And what happens? The house of Basha falls. Joshua, some years before, had warned and pronounced a curse. And that is fulfilled to the letter. Much to the pain and discomfort of Hiel and his wife. And now Elijah speaks. And pronounces the curse of the covenant upon an apostate nation. And pronounces a judgment on Baal. Confronts Ahab with his sin. The word of God and the power of God over against the gods of Baal that are nothing. Never then doubt the power of God's word. He is our help. He is our strength. And if I can go on and apply that a step further... The question you see is not how long will it be before God intervenes? How bad must things get? How powerful will the enemy become? Will Satan's throne really be installed? The question is resolved by trusting in God, by the fact that God has spoken. And it is the fact that God the living God has spoken that resolves our fears and our doubts and all our anxieties about ourselves, about our children, about our church and about the cause of God and truth. What God has said will come to pass sooner or later. Trust in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Blessed are those who fear Him Great and small. And then again, you see that God has already prepared his strategy and his counter moves. He is going to remove evil. He will judge Baal. He will judge Ahab. Think, what do our Bibles tell us concerning Jesus Christ? Concerning the power and authority that has been invested in him by his father. We look around as we see in our country and we hear the false prophets of Islam. They want to take over our nation. They want to impose Islamic religion in Western Europe. Are they a true religion? Is Muhammad as important as Christ? Is Muhammad exalted at the right hand of the Father? Such blasphemy we would not tolerate for a moment. He has no power, no authority over Jesus Christ. Remember Psalm 2. When the nations gang up upon the Lord and upon his anointed, what does he who sits in heaven do? 
he laughs. He mocks. He's contemptuous. What folly for the nations to gang together and think they are going to overthrow the Lord and his Christ. I have set my king upon my holy mountain, Zion. I have established him. You nations, you bow down and worship him. You kiss the sun lest he be angry or you will be consumed in a moment. My Bible goes on to tell me of the one who came. The one who was in the form of God, who took upon himself the form of a servant. And having died the death on the cross, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And what will happen? Every knee shall bow before him. Every tongue shall confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He has a name then which is given to him which is above every name. It's that thought that is there in the Apostle's mind in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21 where he speaks of Christ who has been given as the head over all things to the church the principalities and the powers and the authorities in heaven and on earth are nothing in comparison with the power of Christ. We read further in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8 of the lawless one. And what will the Lord do with the lawless one when he appears? Consume him with the breath of his mouth. Destroy him with the brightness of his coming. We mentioned earlier Revelation the church in Pergamos. I know your works. I know where you dwell. Where Satan has his throne. The whole book of Revelation is about the exalted Christ. That glorious picture of him in Revelation chapter 1. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of Christ. And the beast, Satan, all evil, Babylon included, will be removed from the stage. Christ shall reign. And our hope and our trust and our confidence is in Christ. Even though evil has its day, Christ will have the final and last and triumphant word. And the church of Christ shall be victorious with Christ. Evil cannot cancel out God. Evil cannot cut us off from the vast treasury of grace and blessing that Christ has purchased for us. Evil cannot unjustify us. Evil cannot cast us out of the family of God. Evil cannot take away the Spirit of God from us. Evil cannot come and cut us off and destroy our hope of heaven and of glory. Trust in the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. He will bless us. He will bless those who fear him. And who are those who fear him? Those who tremble at his word. Those who listen to his word. Omri, you didn't listen. Ahab, you didn't listen. Hiel, you did not listen. 
Israel, you did not listen to God. Where was the fear of God in your heart? But he who relies upon God, he who trusts in God, will be like Mount Zion, he shall not be moved. That is our hope and that is our confidence. That does not make us then sit back and say, well, Christ will triumph. We are involved in a fight. We're involved in a spiritual warfare. Elijah is a model. He is a prophet of God, true. But he comes to fight. He comes and he shows himself to be a man of great conviction. A man of courage. A man who is convinced that there is one true living God. And all other things are false. All other gods are false. And because he has been sent by God and has that spirit raw conviction in his heart, he stands firm and will not be moved from serving that God. And that's the same courage, the same conviction that will steal us and enable us to serve God faithfully in this day and age. It comes from trusting in this God. It comes from knowing this God. It comes from trembling at his word. It comes from fearing him. Well, may God give us the spirit of Elijah that we may serve our God faithfully in this day of great wickedness. Amen. Amen. Lord, we plead that by your Holy Spirit you would make us men and women full of conviction, full of courage, that we may, like Elijah, serve you faithfully in this wicked generation in which we live. Oh, our God, have mercy upon our nation. Have mercy upon your church. Grant, O oh God, that we will not turn aside to falsehood, to error, but that our hope and our trust may be in you, the living God, that you will be our help, you will be our shield, and that we will fear you all the days of our life. To that end, we cry out, O oh God, unto you, have mercy upon us, we pray. Be gracious to us and strengthen us for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.